Hello, world singers. My name is Tyler. And my name is Brooke. And this is Cosmere Cosmere Conversations. Welcome to the year of Sanderson as it begins on Cosmere Conversations. We are breaking down the first of the secret projects, Tress of the Emerald Sea. What a joy it has been to, we have already talked about this. We were like kind of taken aback. We were surprised by how quickly the year of Sanderson came upon us. You know, it was the holiday season and then like, boom, emails. I knew that it was, you know, starting in 2023. I did not expect to be able to get the first book literally on January 1st. So that was a surprise, especially so soon after The Lost Metal. So it has just been a couple of months of like full Cosmere deep diving wonderfulness. I am truly so excited to talk about this book. I've been waiting a long time because I finished well before you did. So I've had no one to talk to about this wonderful story. It's always lovely to get those motivational glances from you of just like, why are you doing anything else than reading? Why aren't you done reading? Yeah. <laughs> we need to have a conversation about this. And we're finally here. We're ready for it. Tress of the Emerald Sea. Some of you may have seen our latest unboxing video. That was for the Hoid box. Separately, there will be a unboxing video for the Tress and Emerald Sea hard copy. And holy moly, I cannot wait to get that book. Let's actually start there. Just the beauty of the book, the artwork. Yeah, the book is absolutely gorgeous. And I haven't even seen the hard copy yet. But even just on my Kindle, the details, the images are absolutely stunning, especially like not on my actual Kindle device, but in Mm -hmm. the Kindle app where there's color. Yes. It's Absolutely stunning. The photos of the hard copy book that are up on Dragonsteel are incredible. I am in awe and I don't even have the book in my hands yet. So you can look forward to another unboxing video and probably like three to five of these book club episodes where we're going to be breaking down Tress of the Emerald Sea and we're going to be giving our first impressions, our hot takes, our our cold takes, if we had any, our glimpse into this new world and a character that I already feel like is a classic Cosmere character. Oh, a CCC, a classic Cosmere (laughs) character in Tress. We had mentioned about the Cosmere draft. Tress would make a great wild card and or party leader. I take her anywhere. Oh, totally. Yeah. Either one of those roles I think she would excel in. Let's give a little bit of background on this story. This is a novel length Hoid story. So similar to like Fleet in the Wander Sail or The Dog and the Dragon, but full novel length. And here's a quote directly from Brandon. Quote, yes, he's telling the story in world to someone. You might be able to pick up some of the context of who he's talking to, but it's not meant to be explicitly obvious. You don't need to stress about that as it's not relevant to the story. Just know that this isn't written to you. You don't exist in the Cosmere. 
but is instead meant to be him telling the story to someone in the Cosmere listening, end quote. And while Hoyd as a storyteller can definitely embellish and take some liberties with the narrative, Brandon has made clear this story is 100% canon, it is real, and it is not merely a figment of Hoyd's imagination. It's not just like a fable or something that Hoyd has made up. This really did happen somewhere in the Cosmere. Now, I just want to make sure that everyone is super clear that we are going to spoil the entirety of Tress of the Emerald Sea and everything else. (laughs) All spoilers all the time. Let's just get it out of the way right now. My best guess for who the audience of Hoyd is uh-huh. in this story are some group of people, more than one, Oh, okay. on First of the Sun, long in the future, when they are dealing with the arrival of off-worlders, outsiders, mm. and there's a specific line towards the end of the book around the sorcerer reveal that... Uh, along with some other hints, points me in that direction. But I think this is being told to a group of people on First of the Sun. Do you have that quote for us? Yeah, absolutely. I can read that for us now. And again, hashtag all all spoilers. We're going to the end of the book, bringing it to the the front of the podcast. That's how we roll here. So as we're talking about, Hoyd is the narrator of this story. This is when the sorcerer and Tress are meeting for the first time. And we get this quote Quote, the sorceress turned and walked toward her desk. Well, child, I don't need your technology, but I find you intriguing. Ceslo, please open the bridge's holding chamber. As you wish, a monotone voice said. It was the spirit that inhabited this place, you see, obeying the will of its owner. Yes, like the speaking minds inhabiting the ships you've seen landing on your planet. End quote. Wow, I'm so glad you picked that out. And... That's just one of the many things that Hoyd drops, not as part of the main story, but to the audience of the story that give us hints pointing towards First of the Sun. Some group of people, I don't know if it's an important group, if it's someone we know, if it is related to other future glimpses of the Cosmere, but that's kind of who I think based on that line of text explicitly. I'm really glad you called that out. Good cat. That's what we're here for on Cosmere Conversations. So now you have that information. You can go out and just drop that into casual <laughs> conversation that I know all y'all are having. Just casual Cosmere Conversations. As one does. But this is not casual. This is real serious. <laughs> yeah. So let's continue to just kind of talk about the the background. Let's go to a more normal place of beginnings yeah, yeah. for a podcast episode because Brandon also stated that Writing this book was quite an endeavor unto itself that he was inspired by, maybe in a a different way, but a more like normal way that you hear of authors being inspired. Uh, This was inspired by his wife, Emily, and their love of The Princess Bride. Specifically, the first time that they watched The Princess Bride with Mm -hmm. their kids, Um, And it had been a while since they had seen it and they really enjoyed it. And then afterwards they were talking and they both had the same takeaway, which is that even though that movie, that story is titled The Princess Bride, the eponymous character doesn't do very much. She's Mm -hmm. like pretty useless. Princess Buttercup, right? Yes. Yeah. And so his idea with this story was to 
do something similar, but to have the eponymous uh, female character be more useful and more active. And I think that he did a perfect job, basically. He did a perfect job in creating a character that we love and want to follow and want to root for. And he also did a perfect job at capturing something that is similar in The Princess Bride. Totally. Both the famous movie as well as the book that it's based on. There is an element of that story uh, that, I, because most people are familiar with the movie, I'm just going to yeah. you know go with that telling. But the story is being told to the young boy, and there's those like quick breaks in the story when it snaps back, and the boy is like, you know, say, oh, ew, he kissed a girl or something like that. And then there's a the quick- The commentary. Yes, little commentary. And the breaking kind of of the fourth wall within the princess bride world to get you back to the storytelling world is, of course, then broken again because we are the viewer experiencing- both of these stories, one with the grandfather telling right. his grandson a story and the story itself, so too is the same in Tress and the Emerald Sea. And I feel that so much because Brandon seemed to be having fun with it, playing with those boundaries yes. of the reader and author and character relationship and kind of the way that those all interact in a very personal way. Everyone has yeah. their own experience of a story. And so then when you start to push on the edges and play with the edges, it becomes really fun because it's happening within your own mind, but you know that it's <laughs> happening in Brandon's mind too. And therefore it's also kind of happening in Hoyd's mind because he's the mechanism right. that this is all happening. And I just, I love that type of storytelling. It made me love this book and get attached to this book very quickly. Yeah. And it makes it feel to me more classic in a way. Totally. Yeah. He really achieves that classic fairy tale feel without it being, you know, cliches. And there's a a lightness, a joy that comes through in this sort of whimsical narrative style that is really refreshing and fun to read. It's quite different from really anything else that we've read by him. And I think it is really clear that he enjoyed writing it, that he was really just writing for pleasure. Um, mm -hmm. And that in turn makes it really pleasurable to read, which in my opinion is the complete opposite from The Lost Metal, which I, I think, and Brandon has spoken to the fact that writing the final book in a series is always the hardest because he is constrained by all of the plot points that have come before. Yeah, I think there's some other authors who have echoed that sentiment is that it actually yeah. gets more complicated. It just gets harder and harder as you go along. Including with our last book club and Brent Weeks, yeah. the Lightbringer series. Oh, yeah. Like he chained. basically said the same thing mm -hmm. of like, I sort of wrote myself into a corner and like trying to get out of it would have been too much work basically for it to be worth it. And with this story, Brandon actually went the extra mile, removing it from his normal workflow and process. A, he said that he first told Emily, his wife, about this story more than two or three years ago yeah, and wrote it slowly over all that time as kind of just a love letter or yeah, a storytelling. Yeah, it was just for her. He was exactly. like literally just trying to make his wife happy. And it did not exist even within the same 
uh, I probably like a Dropbox or Google Drive folders. Oh, so yeah, he his said team he couldn't hit see it, it from everyone. Yes, so nobody knew that this project was being worked on, though, you know, seemingly with his progress charts and the constant updates, his team's normally well aware of like, what is Brandon doing right now? Oh, he's probably writing this book. Yeah. And he never had that with Tress of the Emerald Sea. And it just kind of flows more organically. I don't want to do too much of the criticism and comparison directly to the lost metal but like this is the difference that is just on display two books released back to back from the same author within months of each other and they actually serve one another very well as compliments oh in the things that they're portraying i don't want to dive into this too much right now because we're just in the introduction and we're still like too excited but it's just it's really interesting to have the lost metal as a comparison but let's try to focus in as much as we can just on tress itself yeah sure I think this is a great description of the story from Brandon, quote, a tale of pirates, dangerous spores, and because Hoyt is involved, occasional self-important monologues, end quote. Of course, this world is a world of spores, specifically aether spores. Mm -hmm. So it was really cool to get to see aethers now canon in the Cosmere, even though this is sort of a weird example of them sure but it definitely brought me back to reading aether of night and there are some interesting changes and like adaptations and similarities from that that i thought were really interesting aether of night was originally abandoned by brandon because he felt that the combination of like a shakespearean type style and the utter annihilation of the planet were just too at odds and I really felt like this book, Tress, retains some of those Shakespearean influences, but in a way that make a little bit more sense, sort of combined with the fairy tale uh, influence as well. It reminded me a little bit of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night with like the ocean. There's not a shipwreck exactly, but there's mm-hmm. like trouble on the ocean and mistaken identities and a lone female character in disguise, like making her way in the world. So I thought that was cool. I certainly think there's a lot of classical influences on this work. The story is not abundantly complicated. Yes. But the way that it's told, and again, with that fourth wall breaking ability of Hoyd, I think that the simple storyline is aided by everything else. Everything is working in concert together. Totally. And that's what makes this book so enjoyable is we don't need necessarily the deep exploration into the mental psyche of a wounded soldier and post-traumatic stress all the time Yeah, because sometimes the story world and the story that's being told isn't supporting telling that specific version. And that is why I really appreciate what Brandon was able to do here. And it, in many respects, just like made me enjoy and be excited about reading in a way that I hadn't necessarily felt. Yeah. I think the biggest comparison to me, while The Princess Bride is Brandon's stated inspiration, I felt a lot of Lemony Snicket 
in Brandon's writing. (laughs) And it really just like made me remember because that series really launched the idea of an author can play around with the reader and he can bend the reality of the world. Flexibility of the writing medium and the different ways that you can tell a story. It doesn't have to be as straightforward as we often see it to me it reminded me a little bit of like good omens like yeah, terry pratchett, pratchett yes, neil 100%. gaiman vibes that have those self-aware commentary points and mm-hmm. whimsy and they're playing with a lot of traditional tropes but turning them in a way that is unique and different and i think this book is so perfect for what it is and what it's going to be we're going to get this beautiful hardcover like keepsake book of a story that is extremely classic yeah that's gonna last forever that we can totally give to children or nieces and nephews and they can enjoy the story right it stands on its own so well and is completely enjoyable and then of course if you're a cosmere person it's also really exciting from a cosmere perspective so i love that it does both at the same time i have 100 percent agreement however if there are some little kiddos who are reading the hard copy version of trust i'm going to make sure that they have gloves on a poncho <laughs> And then they can slowly go through with my approval. They'll have to check it out, sign their name, leave their favorite toy in exchange, and then check it back in when they're done reading. I would be very serious about the gloves thing. Be like, I'm not letting you put your dirty paws. Your jammy hands. Jammy. We didn't even have PB&J today. Where did the jam come from? There's like cracker crumbs in the spine. You're like, Howard Lyons' beautiful artwork is now covered in cheese it crumbs. You're triggering me. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize we'd have to put a a trigger warning on this episode. But if the slow decay of books by grimy, jammy hands triggers you, this is not the episode for you. You are a, like, novel purist. You like physical books to stay really nice. I am, like... They're I, a user I want, of books. Yeah, I want them to be like yeah. dog-eared and well-loved. I switched to Kindle almost as soon as a Kindle existed because I had such a love of books, the physical medium, and a hatred of like reading the actual book. <laughs> yeah. Um, I and I, Of course, I've read all my books, but like I do feel bad, like opening them up and like bending their backs, oh, like cracking them. No, that's like the first thing I do is crack it. The full. I know you go like a yep. chiropractor, just snapping that <laughs> spine. The books are there to serve me, not the other way around. I totally understand that. You know, uh, Tress collects cups. You and I collect books, and we we just have a slightly different way of treating them. But no, I will note that our hard copies do not get treated like that. There's yeah, no dog ears true. going on that's true. That's of the true. collector's editions, and I just treat all books like collector's editions. You do. <laughs> the only other thing that I want to note here at the top, because it kind of didn't fit anywhere else, we know that off-worlders to Tress's world call the planet Lumar. And Hoyd says that's a pretty good translation of the name of the planet. And then I'll also note that the language that Tress speaks is Clissian. So we don't really know how those two things are connected. I don't know if Clissian is a language spoken all over the planet or maybe only in her particular country or province, etc. 
But there are those two details just for our knowledge to toss away in the old memory bank. Well, we've been talking about our first impressions of Tress. Are there any other ideas or kind of things that you wanted to talk about right now that were just really important or real standouts of the novel? I think one interesting thing for me was being able to feel the time period during which this book was being written in the writing of the book, namely the COVID pandemic, like the early early days of the pandemic, there were just some some themes and some images that ran throughout the book that really were a clue to the things that Brandon was thinking about the world that he was living in at the time of writing this. Um, I'm thinking of the point where Tress leaves the ship and she pulls her shirt up over her face or over her mouth to Mm -hmm. protect herself from the spores. Just the idea, right, of being in a world where there are little particles in the air that can destroy you at any moment that you're afraid of violent fashion yep and then a lot of themes around sort of people who are foreign to you people who are different from you trying to have empathy for those different people uh also around memory and moving forward and how we process memory how we think about uh progress and like habits and things like that to me one of the big standout of Tress and the Emerald Sea is how the connections to the greater Cosmere were done so seamlessly and so meaningfully Mm -hmm. without detracting from the story or entering into what I'll call like the lost metal zone. If you're bringing in a Cosmere connection that's really meaningful, autonomy attacking Scadrail, then it almost demands a lot of focus and backstory on why autonomy, how autonomy, the questions about autonomy, which isn't really the point of the lost metal. But it's like the more you insert an aspect of the Cosmere into the story, the more time that requires us as readers to like spend with that. It's a little bit what we've seen with the Stormlight Archive and Odium. And Brandon did a brilliant switcheroo there where as he was introducing odium bringing odium more into the fold setting up odium as this great evil in the stormlight archive and then whoops a daisy reversing and putting a character that we had just spent since the very first book more time with teravangian into the odium role Mm -hmm. it was like odium's bad odium's bad odium's bad who is odium what is odium it's this character that you've already met and you already know, and you already are maybe aware of how dangerous they can be in Teravangian, and then that becomes the new Odium. It's like backfilling a bunch of this work that you now don't have to do in book five. You know, that can all Mm. be cleanly explained and summarized of just like, it's Teravodium. It's the worst of both of them, or however he wants to go about it. Yeah, I mean, we can talk a lot about the differences there. Just the fact that the Stormlight Archive has been planned for a really long time and the entire Mistborn Era 2 was not planned, happened by accident, and so autonomy wasn't introduced until very late, etc., etc. It was wild to read these two books back to back and see the differences in them. To me, one of them is like what not to do and one of them is like this is the perfect thing. <laughs> it was because I think Tress of the Emerald Sea has just as many super important super interesting and formative 
Cosmere Connection moments that are done just astronomically better than the last metal. Right. I mean, in both, the villain or the like the true villain of the story is a superpowered individual from another planet, an Elantrian in Tress's case, in the form of the sorceress, and autonomy for Wax and Wayne. I think that there is so much great information, so much great Cosmere information in Tress that it's an essential Cosmere story and will really help us yeah. understand Aethers going forward. But it's also just a part of the story. You don't feel like you're just sitting down to read, you know, two pages of Brandon explaining the way the Cosmere works to you. Yeah, that's actually what I think is the most important is that the way Cosmere connections are made in Tress is through asides, brief one sentence or two sentence lines that point in another direction but don't get us bogged down in having to go and explore that direction let me give two brief examples of what i'm talking about in regards to the device that fort uses to communicate the narrator who is hoyd says quote that wizard from the stars wasn't me by the way I've always wondered who traded that device to Fort. That's Nalthian tech with awaken predictive connection circuits, end quote. And, quote, tales of people like Lin Ji who tried to sail around the world with no AVR, end quote. Two lines from different parts of the story, each providing one or more Cosmere yeah. connections, yeah. pointing us in a direction, letting us know like, oh, that device that Ford is using is not of this world. It's got a whole bunch of other stuff going on. Right. That tells us a whole bunch about what's going on on Nalthus, what's possible now, like opens a whole can of worms about Cosmere things, but it's done in a way that is not distracting from the main story. That's the most important thing is that because they're quick asides, it doesn't distract. It only enhances, it only makes me interested as a reader, but then I'm right back into the story with Tress, right back into this world, and focused on this story, which, because of its kind of classic nature and simple nature, is really easy to do as a reader. So just all the thumbs up, all possible stars, fantastic love of Tress and the Emerald Sea. Was there anything in particular that was like your favorite thing about this book? To me, the most interesting thing that Tress was able to pull off was the reveal of a rather ho-hum Elantrian as the sorcerer and villain of the story. I was expecting, I guess, more of a dive into this world and some like, I don't know, spore creator type of thing. Totally. I was like 100% in the story, in the world, in this fantasy fairy tale mm-hmm. universe not thinking about potential elantrian at all and so the reveal elantrian was like with so fun that was my biggest thing was like holy crap this is our first on page cosmere spaceship it's right there there's a bunch of detail about the spaceship itself and like the existence or what it is and potentially how the magic is working via the spaceship i feel like the spaceship is an integral part of maybe like tricking the 
aeonic power, the aeon door, of where it is in the same way that the box around the Seon allows a oh. microphone. The ship, I think, allows to trick the magic to thinking that they can use it. Yeah. So I, I for example, I don't know if the sorceress can leave right. her ship and remain an Elantrian mm. or remain fully an Elantrian. I think that part of the concept of curses that is on display is people come to them and then leave with a curse. Not that she's going around the world like conquering yeah. places and cursing everyone who is her victim. It's just if you happen to stumble into her cave of wonders, her magic ship, uh, then she's the fully powered Elantrian who can mess with your head. Totally. Did you have any rough cuts for this story? I honestly don't think so. I honestly don't think that there was something that stood out as just like, oh, this is bad. Or there wasn't, you know, a chapter, a concept that I wasn't vibing with as I was reading the story. We are often like overly critical because we're looking with such a fine eye. I wouldn't say we're overly critical because we're such huge fans. But usually there is like at least something that we can kind of be like, eh, this wasn't the best. What's that for you? Is there something like that for you? Literally nothing. Nothing I, at all. No, I love literally everything about this book. It's perfect. And I love it. And that's how good it is. It just like doesn't have it's there's no reason to find any fault with it. It's just like a great Cosmere story, a great character exploration, a great fantasy tale. It knocks it out of the park. I said it before. Say it again. All the thumbs up. Just like love Tress. 100%. Shall we dive into the story proper? Absolutely. We have been just jumping from place to place. Let's focus in. Tell me about Tress, the main character of our story. Tress is wonderful. She is, I would say, what we know by now as a pretty typical Sanderson heroine. She's a young, naive girl. She leaves home for the first time, finds out that she's stronger than she thought, a la Serene, Shalon, Vivenna, Siri. <laughs> so this is a pretty uh, well-trodden trope for a Sanderson story. That's maybe my only complaint. I don't really mind it, but it may be nice at some point to see Brandon maybe break out from that specific female trope. I will say that at least in this book, Tress makes some female friends. So that's refreshing. <laughs> It's always good to have friends, and her closest friend is certainly Charlie, who develops in the first you know few pages into her clear love interest and crush. Charlie is the you know prince. Sort well, he's like a nobleman's of. son, I think. Yeah, he's got some royal lineage attached to him. Of course, he is pretending to not have yeah. a royal and lineage. And doing a terrible job of pretending he's to be a He's the worst liar ever. I love that Tress is just like, obviously, you are not a gardener, but I will keep playing along. <laughs> One of the great aspects of Charlie's character is that he is motivated by love kind of in all of those interactions in every interaction that we see because the reason he's pretending to be a gardener is because princes cannot hang out with a person of tress's station a window washer like herself and therefore pretending to be the gardener is a way to hang out with tress yeah and on a 
journey of leaving the island. He is traded away, given away. The sorceress gets him, launching Tress's story of rescue. And I feel like I wasn't ready for this kind of world opening maneuver. I suppose I was kind of expecting to stay a lot more local for oh, you more time. You were just gonna stay on Diggins Point. Like Diggins Point or do you remember that movie Moonrise Kingdom? It was kind of, of a course. Wes Anderson tale of a kid growing up, but it was happening on an island. And everything and everyone existed on this island. And it was kind of a microcosm story being told that was hinting at bigger themes of like love and betrayal and loss and, you know, Mm -hmm. what you do when you're isolated and the friends you make along the way, all that type of stuff. I thought we were going to get more of a story of like that, that we were going to go to a very, very isolated world with Tress and kind of really dive into the characters there and you would kind of realize her small tiny life was actually very meaningful and instead it just be, you know became a whole look at multiple versions of these spore seas mm-hmm. and we're traveling across their world we're learning so much we're being exposed to so much and it was just like a whirlwind that i wasn't ready for but i think that starting with that simple relationship between Charlie and Tress is what makes everything else okay because you're just like on the journey with her and you want her and Charlie to reunite. But you also know that like a bunch of other stuff is happening too. Tress is growing and changing and she's meeting new people. It's just all a wonderful way of setting up the story. Did you expect uh, Huck to be Charlie? The rat reveal, as we shall call it. I believe that there was a couple of hints that pointed in that direction. Never had a single moment of just, that rat is definitely Charlie. What about you? Did that come as a surprise? Yeah, it did not occur to me literally at all. I saw some people online saying like, oh, I called that, you know, pretty early on in the story. I knew it was so obvious. When I read, I, like, completely suspend disbelief. I'm, like, fully in the world. I'm so gullible. Like, you can tell me anything, and I'm just like, yes, pretty story. Yeah, there's an element of that. I also saw some of those comments. I think one, and I might be getting the word incorrect, but they said, oh, I knew it because Huck was described as loquacious. And in the second chapter, Charlie was also described as loquacious oh, gosh. and therefore they had to be the same person and I, it might not have been the word loquacious but it was something like, like that it was yeah. a word that stood out and would stand out if you had that type of eye it is a strange eye to develop but i i certainly know that people like that type of figuring out the story th- mm, that way like yeah. a a tinkerer like pulling apart all the gears sure. and like figuring out, oh, this here means that it's likely to reappear down the road there. And if it does, that means that there's a connection between these two. Like, I understand some of the joy there. And I want to say that one of the great things Brandon has done with this story is a lot of foreshadowing, a lot of little hints, both to the Huck reveal, but also just about the story itself, the journey that Tress is going on and the themes of empathy 
mm-hmm. paying off over time yeah. and the relationships that you build putting effort into those will come back around kind of like a, a karmic balance and we see that so often with tress and the crew so let's dive into the crew let's talk about them more specifically well first let's just get the exciting one out of the way captain crow captain crow the spore eater and we're gonna talk way more about spores and spore eaters and crows in a subsequent episode but she's there and we have quote crow is host to an aggressive strain of the verdant parasite end quote super interesting character yeah opening up the rabbit hole of discussion on aethers and this specific type of aether the right. hell bond yes and we're going to talk about all of this episode coming your way i think that this relationship though is important to take note of and point out because there are several of these bonds we've now witnessed throughout the cosmere with avr and people like six of the dusk with of course the nahel bond spren and the radiant now with crow who is said to have a an aggressive strain but i would argue that what we saw tress do and what tress is becoming and could develop more as or evolve into a greater version of is a partnership with the aethers Mm. that is more akin to the quote-unquote true aethers of twin soul and i'm not going to address that because that's a whole separate episode that's what i'm saying though it allows for these conversations and introduces all of these concepts very well very seamlessly and now i just want more of it i want to know more about crow i want to know more about the spores and how they interact and what the aethers are doing and instead let's continue to talk about the crew because we get fort who is a giant of a man you know reminding me a little bit of rock not just because he is the uh the cook and <laughs> the ship but also because of the the kindness and the camaraderie that Tress, you know, builds her relationship on mm-hmm. uh, Kaladin and Rock kind of form the foundation of Bridge Four. And so too, Tress and Fort are like the beginnings of the crew made anew under Tress. Yeah, he's got a really approachable vibe, despite the fact that he is like always trying to trade with people. And that is his like culture's version of hunting, which is really interesting. The tiny little tidbits that we get of the culture that he comes from and like how it's changed over time, how that presents in Fort himself is really interesting. That's another place where it's like, man, we could have so many spin-off stories on this world exploring all of these different cultures and places. And our narrator has this to say, quote, Ford was 100% human, plus at least 20% of something else I haven't been able to determine, end quote. Which is very interesting. That right there is pointing maybe to, at least to me, a lot of possible shenanigans, we'll say, going on on Lumar for the, his entire people. Like this hunter-trader group of people, I would say, may be 
like the horn eaters, slightly more oh. open to some some bonds or some sh- shenanigans. Well, because we'll we know the horn eaters are descended from like Parshendi human hybrids. hybrids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm, and interesting. Maybe maybe there's something going on there. For it claims to have been to ten seas prior to meeting Tress, which out of means, twelve, which means that by the end of the story. He would have visited oh, yeah. all 12 seas. Wow, well done, Fort. Congrats. Yeah, Fort, the only person we know of that has been to all 12 seas. Yeah. The hunter and trading culture that you mentioned was, again, similar in many ways to the Horn Eaters with the the kind of hierarchy that they placed. They, you know, the hunters go out, kill the thing, but of course you can't have a society all of hunters. And so they like slightly shifted the meaning of what it means to hunt. And for Fort, that means to seek a good trade, reminding me of Arisen and her Mm, master and that relationship. Totally. And then, of course, Fort is the owner of that super cool translation device that apparently comes from Nalthus and is wild because Fort is deaf and... He is able to communicate with others via this amazing device. Uh, Technology, seemingly, that later when it's in possession of the sorceress, Hoyt straight up just calls a laptop. Yeah. And the development of that technology mixed with the Elantrian magic system leaves a lot of questions that we're going to get to down the road when we explore that in more detail. But there is some type of iPad-esque device that Fort is using, it allows him to type his thoughts out and then eventually he gets a more advanced one that can like, you know, type on the fly, continue typing. Yeah, and it has like predictive text basically like we do in a text message. You know, if we type I love, it will suggest words that we may say afterwards. So it makes it quicker for him as well. And I know that Brandon did have several revisions regarding the character of Ford oh. bringing in a deaf author or or someone who yeah. gave a review of kind of how Fort was portrayed and they put a lot of focus on that character representation and what it would be like i think that probably the most emotional or one of the most emotional moments for me during the book was when when the device breaks captain crow smashes his first laptop device yeah and i you know had a like a physical reaction more so to anything else in the book of just like what that must have and did mean to ford and then because crow knew fort and was part of the crew like she knew what she was doing as well yeah and it was it was just hitting like on all the levels that you wanted to which i think was a perfect example of like what brandon was trying to accomplish and successfully accomplished in the story yeah our next member of the crew is Anne, who is very funny she is the character who loves firearms but she is a terrible shot and i love the quote where uh hoyd says that she has such terrible aim that letting her take a shot is the craziest thing he's ever heard. And, quote, I was literally part of a secret plot to kill God, end quote. 
after visiting the dragon and exchanging crow for three small boons, one of the boons that Tress gets are bifocals or or just I think just glasses, yeah, yeah, for Anne and the two part setup for being deaf and Anne functionally being blind. Yeah is a great like one two one that was very obvious and and that was like played as a joke i didn't recognize what was being told to me totally until that moment of like oh she needs glasses she's like seeing things shifted in her vision because her vision itself is askew it's not like just a, a funny thing that's happening she believes she's aiming correctly yeah. at the thing that she sees. And like how frustrating it must be to go through life with that kind of disability, mm-hmm. really, that you kind of get blamed for, you know, of just being like clumsy or dumb or whatever. And it's like, no, she needs help. Like she needs a medical device. There are so many situations like that, that it's easy to take for granted in our modern world. I think that eyeglasses is a really ubiquitous example now where of course a thousand years ago two thousand years ten thousand years ago ain't nobody have any glasses yeah but there's probably people who had messed up vision yeah and if you don't have the knowledge like you you truly don't know right because i can't see through your eyes Mm -hmm. i remember when i was young and I got glasses for the first time or got contact lenses for the first time. I remember looking at the world around me and just thinking, oh, my God. Yeah. This is how you're supposed to see? You're Jasmine on the carpet. I had no idea. Like, I I didn't necessarily feel like my quality of life was bad or anything like that. I felt like I was doing fine, but I was not, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely needed those glasses. Yes. I did not know you were supposed to be able to see the individual leaves on trees. I thought they were just, (laughs) you know, green clouds like they are when you draw them. Like, yeah, that makes sense. So Anne and you have the same vision problem. Basically. Each corrected by lenses. (laughs) And her enthusiasm for firearms, her enthusiasm for learning how to use the cannons aboard is what bonds her and tress because of course tress trains with Anne, and they like share that moment together so when you're talking about a female having a female friend like this is the moment tress and Anne become friends because Anne has an issue a problem a a weakness and an insecurity and tress has empathy for that and recognizes that and Anne's obvious passion and as you said enthusiasm is so palpable it draws you to her even though in the beginning it's kind of quirky and it's really heartwarming to see tress be the one who gives her a shot who sees that enthusiasm and passion and even though it might be the craziest idea hoyd's ever heard you know tress encourages her let's talk a little bit about everyone's favorite skadrian ulam yes ulam wow Okay, this is another one. Did you clock that he was a Chondra? Certainly way earlier on. I don't know if it was the first quote that we get a description of him, but he was certainly talking enough about wanting body parts that I was like, oh, a Chondra who loves body parts. Man, I don't know what it was, 
But maybe because he was described as looking so weird and not really like a normal human. Yeah. So here's the. I was completely thrown off. Here's the first description of him. Quote, he had jet black hair and features that looked too sharp to be real, like he was a painting or a drawing. His skin was an ashen gray, his eyes blood red. If the underworld had legal counsel, it would have been this man, end quote. So certainly not jumping out there as Condra-like, but I also think that the stark image of him and then yet everyone's seeming comfort around him was like a contrast that made me think of a Condra. There's fun <laughs> wordplay for you. I think that there was just an element of this person or th- this Condra is choosing an image that they want in the same way that the Chandra sometimes choose like the weird bodies, the true well, bodies. Well, and we get, and we'll talk more about this in a later episode. We do get clues uh, as to what has been going on with the Chandra and why he is looking different than we've seen Chandra before. Mm-hmm. But it sufficiently threw me off. Like I thought Chandra, and then I was like, maybe like Coloss of some type or Sleepless or like every time he was on screen, I just could not figure out what he was. <laughs> So I think that the introduction of Ulam's character and this like counterpoint to the kind of nice people we're meeting aboard Anne and Fort and even Soleil is then contrasted with this thing that we maybe are supposed to be afraid of. Like he feels closer to Captain Crow Mm. than another one of the characters. He's not that bad or evil. No, but he does have like a weird edge where... He's just a little weird. Um, I think the interesting and most important thing to note about Ulam is that he is sort of, question mark, a friend of Hoyd's. And that is why he's here. Like, he came to check on Hoyd, basically. And Hoyd will say that Ulam is legitimately the best doctor he has ever seen. Striking in that... It's a big Cosmere. Hoyd's been around for yeah. a long time. There are people, for example, on Rashar that can magically heal people flattened by boulders. But Ulam has, you know, a deeper skill, maybe the skill of a surgeon, the, the skill kind of a, that transcends merely magical healing. Well, I'm very curious about the potions that he provides at different times to heal people and like what is... What's going on with his, yeah, his doctor skills. And then last named member of our crew, Soleil, the helmswoman, uh, is on a journey looking for her father. And Tress also gets to bond with her and they sort of encourage each other and have a really nice relationship. And she does find her father in the end, which is nice. Yeah, I think that... It's Soleil who is the one who will say, in a single day, you completely changed my mindset or the way that I viewed the world and Mm. what was possible by, you know, giving me the thing that I had always wanted and had kind of convinced myself I was never going to get, which is uh, the knowledge of where her father was. There's a lot with Soleil specifically that I loved as the Helms woman. There were even a couple of mentions in the text about how 
our knowledge of a Helm's woman or what happens on our planet, which is not Earth, but is the audience's planet, who I think is oh. the people of the first of the uh-huh. sun, who are ship building. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of sailing. They kind of got like they the archipelago. An archipelago. Yeah, so, so yeah. a lot, a lot of sailing. And that kind of contrast of you may be familiar with how things work here, but Soleil's position was really unique. And I loved seeing that in moments of trial or stress from a ship perspective, when there's high spore seas or a storm, even the captain is yeah. taking orders from Soleil and is, you know, grabbing ropes and, and tying things off as Soleil orders. And it's just a a cool position that she serves for the ship and for the crew. And then, of course, is one of the main reasons that Tress becomes captain of the ship uh, for the final moments of the story. And then the rest of the crew, the Dugs. Oh, the Dugs. The Dugs is probably, to me, another one of these examples of, wow, Brandon, you did something amazing here, like truly amazing. <laughs> because, A, I think that we might have to officially nickname everyone who's a Cosmere fan as a Doug. Oh, goodness. You go to a convention. We have to change our intro. Yeah. Hello, Dugs. <laughs> Maybe that'll be a patron-specific joke. Just, hello, Dougs. Because <laughs> they're on the crew. Of course. Yeah. Y- y'all are the, the Cosmere crew. Conversations crew. Of Dougs. Now, what Brandon was able to do with the Dougs was introduce this idea of, there were a bunch of other people on the ship too, but I've forgotten their name. We'll just call them collectively the Dougs. Only to then return at the end of the story when we follow this character of Tress giving empathy to the main people around that we just went over and then of course expanding that to i said i didn't remember the name of the dugs but i actually knew all of them because all of them are important and unique and all of them have their own life stories and each of them has their own name that tress knows and was having conversations with those individuals the dugs that we didn't see but still paid off at the end of the story or post-Captain Crow moment. Um, And you get introduced to the individual Dugs as Tress's role becomes more center stage. When they're under Crow, they're just all Dugs. But when Tress (laughs) becomes the captain, that's when everyone starts opening up and we as the readers start to learn about the Dugs as well. And then, of course, last but certainly not least, Hoyd is a full character in our story for once, looking... Very different than we have seen him previously. Yeah. Afflicted, certainly. Yes. Yes. Does not have his wit as we are used to seeing him. He is cursed by the sorcerers. And what we find out is a bet between the two of them. Kind of like two powerful entities uh, facing off and Lumar and the Emerald Sea just happens to be the setting of these two, you know, Cosmere aware individuals facing off. Hoyd is interested in taking all of the power from the sorceress. I don't know if he straight up like wants to murder her. And Hoyd certainly seems to have an inkling or an urge to want the Seon that controls the ship or just to become a fully powered Elantrian and, you know, get the Seon as a, a bonus, as a little side result. But we get this, quote, To her, the woman looked deific, 
It was the glowing skin. Really helps you land a good first impression. I've been envious of that look for centuries now, and have been aiming to adopt it. In fact, that is what this has all been about. But I get ahead of myself. End quote. Yeah, so I take from that that he wants to be an Elantrian. Yeah, he right? wants yeah. to be an Elantrian. I don't know if it's a direct theft that Rena possesses, if it's like theft of Rena's power, or oh. if it's he wants, uh, you know, access to the internet that uh, gets him into the Elantrian archives type uh, of thing. Well, I think we've seen him, you know, going around the Cosmere, collecting different types of mm -hmm. investiture. And up until this point, he has not had Elantrian powers. And so what he wants is he wants Rena to do some Aeon Door, draw her lines in the air, and turn him into an Elantrian. I don't think that that takes anything away from her. She just has the power to do it. And then because she has all bargaining power, she's like, okay, but you have to be cursed first. And this is the only way that I'll turn you into an Elantrian. But we're going to do an entire episode on Hoyd. Yeah, definitely lots to talk about and the bet specifically and the ramifications because we do, or at least I think this is far in the future from yes. Stormlight Archive, yes. uh, where we are kind of like currently located in the timeline of the Cosmere. So I don't know if it's going to have a direct impact. Like, for example, I don't think Hoyt's going to show up in Stormlight 5 and be an Elantrian. Right. And so this might just be... A little bit of fun speculation for the far future. What about some favorite quotes from the story to kind of wrap us up with this intro episode to the book club? Tell me about moments that stood out from you from Trust of the Emerald Sea. I have so many. I highlighted so much of this book. There was so much wonderful prose. I think that in particular because of the style of the book, because it's told from Hoyd's perspective, we get a little bit more of that authorial commentary, which was really beautiful and just had some really lovely moments. So I have a lot of favorite quote. I'll start with this one. Quote, worries are the only thing you can make heavier simply by thinking about them. End quote. As a chronic worrier, that is true. Fun facts. Yeah. That are not fun. <laughs> There's also uh, some really fun moments like this, quote, We hunt for bravery, cleverness, heroism, and we find no shortage of such virtues. Legends are silly with them. But the person who is willing to reconsider their assumptions, the hero who can sit down and reevaluate their life, well, now that is a gemstone that truly glitters, friend. I would trade a dozen lingies for one person who is willing to sit down for a single blasted minute and think about what they're doing. Do you know how many wars could have been prevented if just one person in charge had stopped to think, you know, maybe we should double check. Perhaps blinking twice isn't an insult in their culture. I'm drowning in bravery, cleverness, and heroism. Instead, kindly give me a little common sense, end quote. Yeah, I think the last bit of that, kindly give me a little common sense, should be tattooed on many a peoples. And <laughs> the poetry of much of the yeah. writing here is kind of on point. And I'm so glad that Hoyt as the narrator allows for that kind of fun poetry. Totally. How about you? Favorite quotes? I agree. There were a lot. And I think that 
even from the get-go, you know, the opening lines of the book are impactful, imagining mm-hmm. what type of story this is going to be and yes, what type of girl. Yes, it pulls you in right away. But there's also another one from early on that I think is a little bit of a foreshadow report. We have this, quote, That said, you must understand this is a tale about people who are both what they seem and not what they seem, simultaneously, a story of contradictions. In other words, it is a story about human beings, end quote. I love that one. That's a really good line, but also, very clearly, everyone in the story is a human being. (laughs) Including the rat. Except on first glance, the rat is the weird one out who's not a human being. But of course, they told us up front, this is a story about human beings. Everyone here is a human being, including the rat. I don't know if that was intended to be foreshadowing. Yes, it's all foreshadowing. I think that everything is foreshadowing. No, but it does, you know, point to that concept of being what you seem and not what you seem. Being the scared, naive girl from Mm -hmm. the small backwater island. And also being the king's mask and sprouter and the brave and capable individual that all the stories are made up of. Like this is Linji and the the great sailor around the world, but it's also Tress. And that's what's so cool about it. There's another great quote about that sort of theme, quote, human beings are like shorelines of continents. The closer you look, the more detail you see, basically into infinity, end quote. And when you want to toss a little bit of shade at someone, you could recite to them uh, something along the lines of this, quote, The other girls were obviously right, as they all knew how to be unique. They were so good at it, in fact, that they did it together, end quote. <laughs> be like, oh, yeah, you, you and all those people are so unique together. Very unique. Yep. Doing all the same unique things. As you alluded to earlier, there are some great quotes about empathy, which is a really big theme in this book. Mm -hmm. Quote, it might seem that the person who can feel for others is doomed in life. Isn't one person's pain enough? Why must a person like Tress feel for two or more? Yet I've found that the people who are the happiest are the ones who learn best how to feel, end quote. And then later there is this, quote, empathy is an emotional loss leader. It pays for itself eventually, end quote. To me, probably the book summarized in a single line is right there. Mm. Empathy is the emotional loss leader. Tress starts from the place of empathy and she is rewarded with that Mm. paying for itself at the end of the book. I think that that is really what Brandon was focusing in on with this tale and with this character. Yeah, I love that. I love that call. Overall, we have had a bunch of fun with Tress, and there is a lot more to explore. I feel like every other sentence, we are just like, we're going to have an episode about that. We're going to have an episode about that. I've been so excited. I've taken basically all of our episode notes already. So we hope that you will join us in the book club, maybe reading or rereading Tress of the Emerald Sea. Do reach out to us. Let us know all of your thoughts about Tress. And until next time, life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. Thank you.